0: Go ahead and have a seat if you don't mind. Good to see everybody. If you are here last week, um, I had uh, Matt Cutler fill in for me, and I think uh, he did a fantastic job based on everything that I I gathered from uh, people that were able to be a part of that. Hopefully, we can extend that experience a little bit more as we think about how the book of James relates to our lives and we just hear God through His Word. Uh, So, before I begin my message today, uh, I'd like to just ask you to bow with me and let's invite God into this whole process. Lord, we are so thankful that you have given us uh, this first day of the week that we can collect our thoughts we can begin to just think about how it is that you are a part of each of our lives. And Lord, I pray that you give me your words that what I say may be engaging for your purposes and may be helpful for the purposes of everyone that's in the room. May your spirit be with us and may you bless your word as we bless your name and worship. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, we are picking up where we left off from chapter 3 and going right into chapter 4, which sounds like a lecture, but I try to make it a little bit more practical because that really is what James is all about. If there was ever a book in the Bible that was written on the ground level, I think there's probably no other place to look than James. So much of the Bible talks about the good things, uh, the what and the why of how the Bible and everything about it focuses on the life of Jesus and makes uh, our life meaningful because of what he's done and how a bloodstained cross and an empty tomb have a way of changing everything. But the question is for a lot of us, how does that matter in the everyday? And if you look at the book of James, uh, he answers that question point by point by point. And he does it by asking a lot of questions of us. And that isn't a bad thing from the standpoint of the Bible because of what it's doing is trying to uh, allow God to open our hearts a little bit and begin to look inside so that we can maybe take a balcony view of our own lives and ask Him, How is it that we can live uh, in a better way for you? How is it that we can overcome some of the problems that we're facing? How is it that we can manage our response to other people? And James does a pretty good job of, of addressing that. He comes right out of the gate though in this particular passage of scripture, kinda swinging. Uh, he, just, he just doesn't pull any punches whatsoever. Uh, he begins to uh, uh, help a church get real. And so it could be a little painful as we go through it, but hopefully it'll be more productive for you than anything. Uh, So if you have your Bibles, we're going to look at the book of James, chapter uh, 4, verses 1 through 10. And I've also got it up on the screen. But since Brian is off in California, enjoying horrible weather in California, um, and he's got his mom and his sister and his girlfriend out there. Could be interesting. Maybe he needs to be here to hear this. I don't know. Well, let's just move on and, uh, and, and, and just pick it up where James starts in chapter four. Where do wars come from? Why do people among you fight? It all comes from within, doesn't it? From your desires for pleasure which make war in your members. You want something and you haven't got it, so you murder someone. You long to possess something but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war. The reason you don't have is because you don't ask for it. And when you ask, you don't get it because you ask wrongly intending to spend it on your pleasures. Then he says, Adulterers, so he starts off with war and he goes right into that. And the screen says that's a little much. So we're just gonna stop right there. Well, if we have to stop right there, we can. Because I think it's what you've heard is is, is a lot of what I I want to say initially. And and that's this. As the book of James is being written, he has in mind a church that is not unlike our church. People that are not unlike us. People who have said, I believe the gospel and I want to be a part of a community of people who have story who are going along with that story and maybe that's why you're here Uh, but the problem is anytime have you ever traveled in the car for a long time with three or four other people Now, just think about it for a minute how did it go initially fun how did it go after five hours not so great right after maybe 10 well probably should pull over and find a place to get out of the car for a while because there may be a death in the family. And so you can see how being together for a long time does begin to escalate the darker side of our nature. And when James is looking at the church, he's saying they've been together for a while and it seems like it's starting to get a little... a a little sketchy as far as how they're getting along. And he wants to nip it in the bud, and he wants to help us, I think, as a church to stay on track. But it's not just for the church. It's for any relationship that we have, either in the church or outside of the church, that I think James is helping us out with. For starters, um, a statistic was given to me a while back, and I don't know if it's true or not. Some people say it's a myth, but others say no, it is true. In the recorded history of humanity, going back 3,400 years, how many years do you think that civilization has lived where they are at peace with each other? How long do you think that's been? I mean, 3,400 years is a long time. About a week and a half. Well, we'll be a little bit more generous because some people have actually said, Sean, that it's 268 years. Now, how they came up with that number, I don't know. But um, I'm looking at 3,400 years, and I'm thinking only just a small fraction of that amount of time did people live peaceably with one another? So that kind of highlights the problem that I think is surfacing in, in, our, in, our, in our reading this morning. Uh, somebody took it a little further and they said, okay, now this is a stat you can relate to. In, in, in terms of the United States, um, in the span of our history, which I think is 241 years, I could be wrong, but roughly 241 years, how many years have we not been fighting with somebody else? Anybody want to gather a thought on that? Okay. From what, from what I understand, and I, and I looked at all the wars, uh, 221 years worth of warfare. So if you do the math, It's about, what, 17 years that we've actually had a period of time where we just weren't fighting anybody? What is it about fighting? I mean, I I noticed driving home from work the other day. I live off of Route 14 up Lisbon Road. I saw a nice bulletin board about a real estate agent. Saw another one about a place hiring somebody. And then there's this guy right in my face like that And it's some kind of fight that's getting ready to happen on a billboard. And he was very aggressive looking. And if you drive down, you know what I mean. You guys, you've seen that? I have no idea what that's about, but it's got hostility written all over it. And there's something just in the very front of our awareness of life that has a category called hostility. And it's just within our nature. We can't help it. Uh, We love to fight. And for whatever reason, that fighting takes all kinds of forms. And yet God is saying, that can't work after what I've done. And James is just coming straight from the shoulder. And he's saying, "Uh, you guys are fighting because you're caught up in a love affair. And it's a love affair that doesn't involve God. He says, what is it that causes you to fight with each other? And he goes on to kind of explain that you want something, but you can't have it. It could be that you want something that somebody else has, and you want to overpower them and take it. Or it could be that you want your way, and you're not getting it, and so you're doing whatever it takes to get your way, rather than asking God and trying to find some means of discovering what it is that that desire is creating within you that God can fill. And maybe that's you. I know it's me sometimes. There are times when I want something and my first question isn't, what does God want in this equation? But rather, what do I want? And oftentimes it's a desire for something that is just over, overshadowed in my mind, everything else. And when that happens, James is saying one word adulterers. And why does he use that phrase? Because he says essentially critical relationships that we have with each other only work when we first of all have a love affair with God. That is, we're passionate about God. That God is really front center of our thinking. It's not that we don't think about other things, it's just that we're prioritizing how he factors into everything that we do including how we relate to each other and what James is saying is maybe something that we can relate to you remember when you were in junior high um, my kids were there just not very long ago and now they're they're gone so it happens it it happens just trust me it, it happens and before they get there though Invariably one of them will come home during junior high and they will say something like we were friends with so-and-so But then we got into an argument and then guess what we're not friends anymore And what's even worse in our friend group all of them sided with that person and not me And you begin to hear this whole dynamic and it seems so fatal and so well it seems just so catastrophic that you think you know, there's nothing worse that a person could go through than that. And you sympathize with your kid when you see him go through it because you never want to see him hurt in a relationship. But you also know in the back of your mind, it's gonna happen. And, and, and this is probably preparation for it, unfortunately. There are gonna be people that you run into that maybe you initially get along with, but eventually you end up like this. And I think junior high may be a primer for that. And the thing that you tell your kids is, it may have been your best friend, but guess what? There will be other friends. There will be other new people that come into your world. There will be other other friendships that have different situations, context, interests, and it's gonna get a lot richer. But as we all know, there is a friendship that is that is probably one that emerges in many of our lives, and one that many some of us are struggling with, and, and that is our spouse, and how it is that we are wired to be devoted to one individual. I mean, we live in a time for sure whenever there is um, a kind of a gender blender marriage blender going on where you 're single together with somebody married transgender, lesbian, gay, on and on and on. It's just a whole spectrum. But the reality is, the way God made us, is that we're designed to be devoted to one person and one person only. And there surely, you know, there are polygamous relationships and things like that, but at the end of the day, James points out something about us, and that is we're used to relating to one person profoundly um, at a time. That's all we have the capacity for. But why does he say that? Because he's looking at our hearts and he's saying, there's there's something going on here. And there was a devotion that you had to God and life seemed to work for you. But now you've got distracted by things, you've gotten pulled away a little bit and something else is wooing you. As we read on, if we can, let's go ahead and and, and pick up a few more verses from there. Starting with verse four, it says, adulterers, don't you know that to be friends with the world means being enemies with God? So anyone who wants to be friends with the world is setting themselves up as God's enemy. Or do you suppose that when the Bible says he yearns jealousy over the spirit, jealously over the spirit he has made to dwell in us, which I think is another way of saying that he made us and now he longs for us to be in relationship with him. It doesn't mean what it says, and then in the in the next verse, which I love because it's giant print. Uh, but God gives us more grace. So it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit to God, then resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, as I'm reading those verses, and I'm gonna I'm gonna finish it off with what they mean for us. I'm thinking about different people in different circumstances and how they either fall into, fall into a, a friendship together or they fall into hostilities. And um, I, I, I realize that in a church there is a basis for us to relate to one another as friends. Because the cross of Christ is designed to disarm all of the darkness that is at work in our lives. But the less we allow that darkness to be disarmed, the more chaos it creates relationally. But if we humble ourselves before God, as the scripture says, because God opposes the proud, um, God will begin to come close and give us wisdom. Now, a minute ago, I, I shared how the hostilities that we have can escalate and I, I was just thinking, it's been on the top of my mind, some people have been asking me how my son Christian is doing, going to a strange place. Um, he, For those of you who aren't aware of it, I'll, I'll give you just a brief summary. Uh, my son Christian is, is, uh, is, is my oldest son, who is studying in Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan plant life because he's uh, uh, taking landscape architecture in college. He is so enthusiastic about all things plant oriented because I really think that's how he sees God as through creation that way. That he's chosen to go to a place that just now opened his borders so he could go and discover some exotic plant life. For me, I have a little bit of apprehension about it because I don't know these people. I don't know what level of um, hospitality they're going to offer him. I've heard a lot of countries mentioned in the news that end in stan and it's never been good so i have to say i I have some misgivings about it but he said no it's all right so you know he went with our blessing and with prayer and fasting and when we gathered him to go we prayed over him and we asked god's angels to protect him and all of that because we sincerely believe that that does impact how he's going to be perceived until what I heard this week, uh, I haven't heard from him in about 10 or 12 days and because he's been off outside of cell range and I, I'm hoping that he's okay. And he calls his mother and says, um, yeah, I went into this small town and uh, it, was, it was the first time that I was taken in to, um, uh, to, to be interrogated about my business in this town. And that sounded kind of ominous, especially when he said the first time. So as he unfolded his narrative, he described how he went into this small village and he's six foot six, so he's very tall, and, 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 and was pretty quickly um, uh, approached by the authorities who took him in and just kind of uh, interrogate, interrogate him pretty without any violence or anything, according to him, uh, pretty severely. And he said, Dad, you know, I was all right because I, I knew they were just shaking me down for money. And I knew Christian well enough to know that that's gonna be a hard battle on their part because he's a penny pincher. And I said, did, did they make any money off of you? And he said, no. He said, they finally let me go. Um, well, I said that to his mother and then she brought that back to me because he went into the next village had the same thing happen again. And, of course, when you hear these stories about your son being apprehended in a foreign country, it doesn't really make you very confident. Uh, But he said that it went a little easier. And he said, the third village that I went into They also took me in, but the the, the lady who was the head authority in the town and I had a conversation and it ended up being actually um, a a, a good conversation. And then he said, and then after that, and I'm thinking, holy cow, I don't think I'm gonna let you leave the house. I didn't mean it when I said I would lock the basement when you left. But he said, the next town that I went into, I just walked into the town, and when I saw somebody that looked like an authority, I just put my hands in the air like that, and, uh, and they, came, they came towards me, and he said um, it, it, it went very well. And I thought about his experience, because you know, when it comes to people that are different than us, are you trusting, or are you apprehensive, if not a little standoffish? If you're not at least a little bit somewhat critical of that other person, you probably haven't watched much TV. You probably haven't heard much in popular culture. You probably haven't been following along on concepts like stranger stranger danger and all of that stuff where uh, there's somebody who's gonna do you harm lurking around the corner. And we are so conditioned to look at other people skeptically that most of the time we see them as a threat as opposed to somebody who's actually going to be um, a, a decent human being. And what James is saying is a lot of people in the church are trying to just get their way without listening to what other people are saying because they don't want to get too close. Because did you know that anytime you get into a close relationship with somebody you start to see not only their good side, but you sort of see that like everybody else, we all kind of have a dark side. And one of the difficulties about coming to church is that over time, after the honeymoon period is over, you start to see flaws. You start to see flaws in each other, you start to see some willfulness, you start to see even the pastor has a few flaws. And then you think, hmm, I don't know if that place is for me or not. But let me assure you, it doesn't matter where you go, it's going to be the same pattern over and over and over. Now where do you go with this? Where does James go with this? Well basically he says there is a remedy and it's kind of a severe one but it will work. And, And that is recognize that there is a devil at work in the place so he's just trying to find different ways to poke and prod the process so that we're even increasingly antagonistic towards each other. But there is also a God in the process who James says we're called to be friends with. This friendship that we have with God is really the whole reason why we're here. The friendship that we have with God is Based on actually a new word that God has given us that we didn't have before Jesus came. You know what word that is? Agape. Agape isn't a word that was floating around in Jesus' time that people used. Agape was a word that the church basically kind of made up and said there's no way to describe the type of love that we want to tell you about except for what this word is, agape. And if you ask me what the word agape means, it's this. Most of the time when we've looked at other people in relationship, if it's friendship, it's transactional. What can they give me? What can I give them? They want to hang out with me because I can bring to the equation maybe something about my personality that that they like. And they, me as well. And so it's sort of this give and take thing. And then when it comes to even business, it's I'm going to have a friendship with you business-wise as long as both of us have something in exchange that we can benefit from. And when it comes to love, I'm going to be in that category of existence with another human being as long as what they offer and what I offer is, is, is transactionally acceptable. And that's all we knew. And when God came into the world, he wanted to show us something, that there was another way. And the other way is this. It is a way that says, I love you no matter what. It's not premised on any transaction or any conditions. It is simply the Son of God coming into our world and then being mistreated, abused, unjustly tried, and extremely unjustly executed passively, not reactively. He didn't didn't just say, I'm going to take you on. I'm going to call down the angels. He just said, I'm going to I'm going to allow myself to be killed because I don't think people understand the kind of love that God wants to show us. And when Jesus submitted himself to even the point of death, he was saying, this is how much you are worth. But it, it gets better because beyond that, he's also telling us that I am creating a new way that when I go down into death, I am disarming death with something greater than that. And that is the love of God, which the death of, of, of our immortality mortality could not contain. And the love of God called Jesus out of death and into life immortal on the third day. That's good news you know what else this it it's love it's love that says no matter what no matter what can't you see I am a hundred percent in favor of you for no other reason than I can't help myself that is the kind of God that we worship in this place That is the kind of God that people come into this building and they say, where can I find this love at? Because I see it. And then you know what they expect? You know what they expect? Is to see a tribe of people who embody agape love. And James says, I'm looking at this church that I'm writing to and I'm not seeing it. I'm seeing people saying, I'm spending five minutes in devotion reading my Bible, but I'm spending 20 hours over here this week watching TV programs that are completely undoing everything that that devotion told me. Now let me ask you, in any relationship, does time spent with another person make a difference? The amount of time? So, when James is looking at this church, he's saying, you guys are spending an awful lot of time with your attention in places that are, are really kind of contrary to what you're doing on Sunday morning. And as James is looking at them, he's saying, you know, the, world, the world's happy that you come to church. The world's happy that you spend a little bit of time in the Bible. The world is actually happy that you pray a little bit. Just don't do it too much. You can flirt around with it. You can tease it a little bit, but don't take it into your heart. And what James is telling us is that if you're a follower of Jesus, then your primary devotion for everything else to work has to be God. It's the only way. But there's a lot of us in the room who are saying, I want that, but I got to tell you, I am a conflicted human being. And James does talk about that in another part of his book. He says we can be double-minded where we, we live in this world here and we live in this world over here. But if you've ever done that very long, you know you end up being very anxious. And you know that it doesn't really make you the human being that you're supposed to be. So, how do we disarm the hostilities that are inside of us towards others? And how do we, with each other, disarm those hostilities in a way even though we don't agree on things, we still accept the other person. How do we do that? Well, it's a little severe, but it works. And it's this. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And then you may be saying, "That's a great pastor, but how?" And James like, "I got you covered. Do this." In verses 8 and following, here's the recipe. He says, "Draw near to God, which I hope, you know, I'm trusting we're all doing today, because God is just waiting to draw near to you. God is a gentleman, he's not gonna say, I'm gonna overshadow you with my presence and hopefully if I smother you enough, you'll come towards me. No, he's just like, I'm gonna hang close by with you. I'm gonna sort of follow you and when you're ready and you're open, I'm right there for you." Make your hands clean, you sinners. Make your hearts pure, you double-minded lot. Make yourselves wretched, mourn and weep. Let your laughter turn to mourning and your joy to sorrow. And maybe you're thinking at this point, I'm sorry I came to church today. But the fact is, as James is telling us this, he's saying it's kind of a radical surgery that you have to do. You have to, you have to take everything that's going on in your world And for us, it would be probably a lot of digital input. And there are other distractions as well. And you have to hit the pause button. And you need to spend not five minutes, but a quality season. Maybe a week or two or a month of just listening to God. Reading his word. Spending some time praying and just reflecting just thinking about what it means because i can assure you when you do god god will listen and he'll open up and not only that most importantly you'll hear something that you weren't able to hear because you're too busy being distracted by everything else I think one of the reasons why churches are, are, are statistically in our country they are either flatlining or in decline is because we have been technologically seduced to lose our ability to reflect upon what's going on in our lives. Because when we do that we're asking God I don't like what I see what can you do to help me? But distraction is so tempting. She's a wonderful temptress. But a horrible, horrible wife. And as God is looking at us, he's saying, what about us? What about what's happening between you and I? Maybe we should spend some more time together. And so when James writes that, he's just saying, when I tell you to kind of, you know, wail and do all that stuff, he's not saying you should go out into the desert and join a monastery and become a monk for a while. He's just saying, have the courage to press the pause button and begin to see what is swimming around in your head relative to the voice of God. And a lot of us, when we get to that place, can be a little overwhelmed. And that's why we need to be in a community of people like this. Where there is love and where there is trust and where there is encouragement hopefully that will help us not despair along the way. There's nothing better according to James than a church that works. But there's nothing worse than a church that's forgotten how to love. And for us The starting place when we lose our first love is to just go back to him and begin to rekindle it once again. And the words of scripture have a profound way of bringing that first love back to light in our eyes, in our hearts. And the body of Christ, when people are reflecting the qualities of the God who first loved them, is another way to reinforce those very things that God wants to do in your life and mine. I'm trusting that my son Christian is going to make it back in one piece. That perhaps in that environment, the things that he's learned in this environment about humility are disarming enough that even in situations like that, love has a way of conquering My question for you today is does it have a way of conquering your heart because that's why God allowed his son to come into the world and do what he did to show you first no cards to the vest but open-heartedly how much he cares for you I'd like to just take this moment and uh, and and stand and uh, we're gonna